Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You know, David, I like to say that I never have psychic experiences, that I am not psychic, I can't predict the future. But as we psycho. I mean, well, psychic, psycho. Well, I go for both. I'll take either, but probably the latter. But let's just talk about two predictions I had this week. The week they were right. taping the show, I had the feeling that Apple Computer, and this was widely predicted, would come out with upgrades to their flagship notebooks, the MacBook Pro. Okay. But the one area where I felt I had it right was that the standard hard drive would be larger, would be 250 gigabytes. Very small prediction. It turned out to be true. Right. And on the very same day, there would be an update to the iPhone's software. Are you sure you're in the right show right now, Gene? That's right. Well, it's psychic, though, because this is not the Tech Night Out Live. This is the psychic kind of okay. thing. So I knew those two things, and I was right. Uh, you'd think those fall into the psychic box. I think they fall into the psycho box, if nothing else. Because uh, I think that might be more appropriate here. Well, you know what? I think we have to just admit the fact that I am not going to have any psychic experiences. Psychotic breakdowns, I can understand. That all the weird experiences of this pair are safely placed in David's hands. He has all the weird experiences. That's certainly comforting. But outside of our hands, and far away from us, probably good for his own sake, (laughs) probably wishes he was farther away as he listens to us. Well, we'll see about that. I think we'll have a good time with Don Ledger this week. Don is a very dynamic speaker who I saw at the Atlantic Coast UFO conference very recently in Atlantic City that we spoke about on a recent episode of the Paracast. And uh, Don has done extensive research into the rather fascinating Shag Harbor incident, as well as a number of other incidents up in Canada. And as we understand, he's also been looking into the recent Texas sightings. And uh, we're going to have a lot of questions to ask him about that on this week's episode. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. 
Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we have Don Ledger, UFO researcher from Canada, and I know you have been doing a little bit of research, or maybe more than a little bit of research, into what's been going on in Texas in recent weeks. And have you got any feelings as to how those sightings fit with the overall picture or maybe differ from it? First of all, I targeted a a segment of that particular incident where it revolved around um, Steve Allen, the pilot, being a pilot myself, that perked my interest. And uh, or piqued my interest, and uh, the two friends that he had along with him, and it was sort of a an accidental um, involvement. Now, of course, we were all fairly interested in this particular sighting because it was so all invasive, and so many people uh, reporting them, and uh, and then the military was involved with the F-16s. At first, they weren't, and then they were. You know, it had all the uh, all the earmarks of a good UFO uh, little flap going on down there. But on a, one of the uh, lesser-known lists that I was on, um, one of the um, people, one of the members of that list, had emailed uh, a copy of the uh, air charts for that particular area, on putting in the list as an attachment. And when I opened it up, it, it mostly it was on there in order to show the uh, that military operations area that was in contention, because that's right. where the jets were supposed to be operating, and mm-hmm. its relationship to Stephenville and its relationship to uh, Dallas Fort Worth and so on, and the air traffic control zones and everything thereof. But on this particular uh, chart was. Uh, just over to the right-hand side was a white circle, and uh, with uh, what's called blue dashes going around the the outer, the outer perimeter of the circle, which normally denotes on an air chart that it's a Class D airspace. And but the difference between this and every other Class D airspace is that it's pretty much whited out, and right in the middle is a, a smaller prohibited airspace over Crawford, Texas. Just so and people that, don't get confused mm-hmm. over the terminology and the jargon. What's a Class D airspace? Okay, well, there's Class A, B, C, and D airspace. There's even Class E airspace, which is, uh, as you get closer to A, it gets more intensive and uh, around an international airport and uh, any air, you know, you know, for instance, Chicago, uh, in this case, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and so on and so forth. They all have uh, different classes of air, airspace, and if you could imagine looking at the airspace from the side, starting at the, at the airport itself, out about seven miles from the center, you, you would see uh, like a cylinder going up, maybe up uh, about uh, as high as 2,000 feet. And then extending out from that to a larger cylinder uh, would be Class B, again, Class C, and then Class D. So if you can imagine an inverted wedding cake, that's what it looks like. And it's mm-hmm. it's the way that air traffic control controls aircraft coming into an international airport, a controlled airport. You know, the track-ons around that, which are the uh, terminal radar control areas, and so on and so forth. I don't want to get into too much jargon to do with um, aviation because it is, right. I mean, the, the book's six inches thick, you know, when you're just, yeah. just becoming a private pilot, never mind being a commercial pilot. But anyway, this particular airspace we're talking about is surrounding uh, President Bush's home, his ranch mm-hmm. in Crawford, Texas. Crawford, so right. the outer perimeter, which is about, uh, the whole thing is about 69 miles across or 60 nautical miles in diameter. And the outer uh, edge of that thing is only about 18 miles away from the center of downtown Stephenville. So, and, uh, you know, uh, it's the um, the northwestern quadrant of that particular round, round uh, uh, protected area. 
where um, Steve Allen and his two friends were that night in uh, Selden, Texas, about three miles just slightly east-southeast of, of uh, Stephenville, and they saw the object coming. It was coming from that area. They had nowhere else to be coming from when they saw it other than to be coming in from that particular area. And then uh, they watched it as it disappeared over Stephenville. It sort of morphed into a different shape. Then they they left the area. Uh, Steve and uh, one of the one of the uh, friends, you know, got truly upset by this and went right home. So uh, Steve and his remaining friend, uh, Mike Oden, went, uh, and they've been lifelong friends ever since they were in grade school together. They uh, went to his place where uh, Steve was dropping, uh, Steve Allen was dropping him off, and Mike Odom explained to his wife what had happened with uh, Lance Jones, the other fir- person had been truly upset by this thing, uh, and said, uh, you know, what had happened with Lance Jones, and so she knew Lance Jones's wife, so she decided to call over there and see if he was all right, and he answered the phone, Lance Jones, and said, I see it again, it's coming back from Stephenville, and so they all ran outside, and this time they watched it coming just slightly to the south of them moving at about 600 miles an hour where they did, figured it was moving around 3,000 miles an hour before and uh, with two F-16s in hot pursuit right behind them with afterburners on. And they watched it heading right back in the same direction right towards the uh, restricted area. So knowing what I know about how the military operates to a certain degree anyway, if these um, uh, F-16s are up flying and this thing is heading right for uh, the prohibited area over uh, Bush's Ranch, which is pretty much the same as the prohibited area over uh, Washington, D.C., and 30, uh, I think 42 other designated areas around the United States where the president might be, you know, like Camp David and uh, some of the other places, particularly Washington, which is the probably the tightest. Then I had to wonder then, first of all, they, they probably had to come up with a, a, a reason why they, first of all, fudged on saying that there were no F-16s that night, and then turn around and say there was 10 operating in the military operational area. That's a very small military operational area to be having 10 jets flitting around, you know, at about 600 miles an hour. They just don't do that, okay? That might wash with the lay public, but I don't think it's going to work with anybody that, that knows about airplanes and speeds and how, how dangerous that could be. Now they had to admit to that, but they had to come up with a story about operating in the military operational area. I don't think they were doing that. That at all, I think the radar, uh, phased radar array, they call it. Uh, some is phased radar. Some it's like a fanned radar system that runs right across Texas at, at 34 uh, degrees north latitude, which is just below Dallas Fort Worth, where the 301 is stationed, the Air Force fighter wing. It sees out into space 300 miles. That particular hmm. radar array, and anything going through there is going to trigger something. And I think these guys found something. They had something anomalous. On, it was picked up by their radar array. We'll never know it. And they were scrambled to intercept because look where it was going. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these were there for any other reason other than that they just blundered into that area, not because they were trying to make contact with Bush or anything like that. It was just that his enclave was there, this uh, prohibited airspace, which is the inner circle, which is six, uh, six uh, nautical miles across is prohibited at all times. The other outer circle, which is you know, sort of a Class D airspace, is prohibited only by what they call NODANs, which is notice to airmen, when, and it can happen within an hour that it'll, it'll, be, it'll turn out to be as prohibited as that inner circle. But for, the most, for most of the time, when he's not there, 
that particular perimeter is uh, no tam for meaning you're going to have a tra- you have to have a transponder and a flight plan to go into that area when you go in there because they see you. Can I just ask you to clarify before David continues? Sure. Okay. Now you said Bush's enclave was there. Was he there during the time of the sighting? No, he wasn't. It was oh. a, a Tuesday, and he uh, I checked on that. He was in Washington D.C. that day, and he was signing new bills into into law. It's highly unlikely he would have left work and headed down to Crawford. I mean, that's a bit of a drive, you know, even with an airplane, you know, which would have been, uh, probably would have been Air Force One into... Yeah, no, he's not, he wasn't there. Yeah, we, we know he no, wasn't, he wasn't there. there. Yeah, yeah, he's not there. But now, let's get to this issue of these. Uh, this report. You've got two jet fighters scrambled, or at least a couple of fighters that are following an object. Now, Don, let's just get a couple of things clear for people who aren't very familiar with the episode. We're talking about a fairly large object, right? Right. Well, the original estimates uh, by Steve Allen, one of the anomalies with this thing was the fact that uh, it was the sun was halfway down over the horizon when they saw this thing, so it wasn't dark yet. So right. what they saw was brilliant lights in the sky coming along towards them from the, from the south, uh, east-southeast, which is almost dead east, and uh, from the, the direction of the uh, protected zone. And these were big lights in the sky that were tracking along as if they were fixed, on one large object, but they couldn't mm-hmm. see the large object. He said it was so weird because, it, look, he says, I'm almost convinced that there was something there, but I couldn't see it. And I can appreciate that because I had that happen to me once. But anyway, he figures, well, I think the thing, whatever it was, was invisible. I said, yeah, but why have it invisible if you're going to let the light show? You know, he said, right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe you got to warn them off, you know. But um, this, Well, now you've um, got these... You've got no. these jet fighters that are now basically following this thing, or, or, uh, or not this trying time. To go at this point, they're still coming in from the east, okay? Okay. And it goes right. over Stephenville and disappears over Stephenville for a while, and then they're they're called back outside, and the thing is, if it's the same one coming back from the from over Stephenville and heading now back towards to the east, and this is mm-hmm. when the uh, the F-16s are in evidence. And they see two of them with afterburners on. That means they're speeding up. You you go to afterburners, that gets you there in a hurry. That really increases speed. And the F-16 is pretty pretty much capable of getting up to Mach two. And uh, but when you start using afterburners to get there, you use up a large portion of your fuel. That uh, decreases right. your air time. Now, just shortly after that, he got a phone call from a friend of his down in Hico, Texas, which is just. Great boat on the line where these things were heading across. Him, who was a pilot friend of his down at Hecko, Texas, and him and another pilot were sitting around out in this guy's patio uh, that night, and uh, they heard two sonic booms. Now, um, just shortly after they they had seen this thing go across, uh, mind you, this was telegraphed a little later on. So it seems likely that these uh, two F-16s went through the sound barrier. Right. Now, okay, so they go through the sound barrier. So what? But the fact of the matter is it's illegal to go through the sound barrier or in a domestic area, domestic airspace. You have to have permission to do that. So these pilots would have had permission, had to have permission in order to go supersonic, in order to try to keep up with this thing, which was, Steve said, almost seemed like it was playing with it, staying just ahead of them. And mm-hmm. again, you know, the size of a couple of football fields are not larger. The original estimate of the, the one he'd seen heading towards Stephenville was about a mile uh, long, you know, and a half mile high, and uh, moving at 3,000 miles an hour. This one seemed to be going about 600 miles an hour with the uh, F-16s in hot pursuit when it was 
heading back to the east. I mean, there's a lot of detail there. It's unfortunately, it's you know, you just don't have the time on a radio show to get involved in in in, in the, the the tiny little details that evolve. You know, when these things are going on, because there's so much input coming in from different areas and so on. But anyway, that's sort of a rough sketch of the thing. Right. But I, I can't impress on how important it is that we have a couple of F-16s now. First, you know, denied. And then, uh, then uh, attested to, you know, two weeks later, saying that these things were heading towards um, or following a, a UFO, which just happened to be, if it was a UFO, if not several, that, which was headed towards back into the restricted zone over President Bush's ranch, you know. And they'd have to react, wouldn't they? Regardless sure. of the fact, with, you know, in this day and age after 9-11, you can imagine what the Air Force well, would be thinking. Of sure, Don, that. absolutely. I mean, obviously they have to react, but the question then is, What's the protocol? So they have to react and do what exactly? You've got a couple of F-16s. They're in hot pursuit of an object. Now let's say they catch up to it. What comes yeah. next? Okay, if they catch up to it, then they, first of all, have to identify, and then secondly, they have to make contact with whatever it is and encourage it to get out of the area. If not, shoot it down. That's basically mm -hmm. it. All right. Okay. Every pilot has to, in Canada, in the United States, and in England, as far as I know, has what's called the interception orders. He has to carry it in his airplane, uh, whether it's a private pilot, commercial pilot, and of course, military pilots all know. And it's the sign language used by, because you're not, you know, there's 720 commercial or uh, civilian radio frequencies that uh, pilots use, and uh, some of them are nav navigation channels, and the military have a whack more of their own. So they're, they're normally operating on their own channels, and, we're, and the private pilots and, and commercial pilots are operating on the other 760-odd. But anyway, they don't know what channel anybody would be on at the time, so they use these wing-waggling maneuvers, and uh, they'll come right up alongside you. You might have an F-16, uh, and you're flying a 172 or something. They'll come right up alongside you with, with one wing under yours, you know, and you'll see the clearly see the pilot in the in the cockpit, and he's motioning, pointing down or pointing left or right or something. In, in other words, follow me. But this right. is the interception orders, and then you've got to go. Or they're going to shoot you down. That's pretty much what it is nowadays. So that's that's what can happen uh, if they figure it's anything uh, that's of a threat, you know. Uh, and it's happened. They've, uh, you know, in over Washington, D.C., since 2011, they had something like 400 or something uh, pilots busted for flying into that airspace inadvertently. They were all harmless, but, I mean, a lot of these guys get charged for it, you know. You know, a license restricted or taken away for six months or something like that. But that's what happens. Well, I'm, what interests me about the sightings in Texas, are these basically standalone events happened that time and that was it? Or is there a history in that area of other cases going back? through the recent period or longer than that? Were you able to find out anything? You can go all the way back to Lubbock, Texas, back in the 50s, early 50s. You know, the Lubbock Lights and uh, Lovell, Texas, another incident there. Well, you know, there's many incidences down in the American Southwest. It's lousy with uh, UFO reports and, and mini flaps in that area. And, of course, you'd expect to maybe to see some um, erroneous uh, reports of uh, weird-looking aircraft or at least fast-flying aircraft down in that, you know, in the American Southwest, particularly, you know, with the Area 51, which we know about now, which has been down there, you know, from uh, back in the early 60s when it was really up and running. And, of course, there's Edwards Air Force Base and, and uh, you know, the uh, rocket ranges and all the rest of the stuff that's going on down there. So there's going to be some, you know, prosaic explanation for some of the uh, sightings that we're seeing down there, but uh, by the same token, some a lot of them can't be explained as, as we know to be the case nowadays. It's pretty hard to, you know, explain away cases with the prosaic these days because the public's not as uneducated about aircraft and what's flying these days as they were back in the 50s. 
But, um, yeah, and in that particular area, even now, this thing continues to go on. There's, uh, I guess, MUFONs down in that area right now having uh, doing more interviews. Have we seen a single compelling photograph or piece of video footage from Stevensville? Nothing that compels me. I've seen that uh, squiggly line type of thing that I've seen. There's yeah. also there's the one that uh, uh, might have been taken by the... Uh, the video recorder in a in a police car down there that well the two deputies uh, saw the object uh, I'm trying to remember the names right off of those seeing them it's only been the last couple of days that I've made, been made aware of that now I don't, I don't specifically concentrate on the Stephenville sightings per se there's a lot of people down there in that area who can do a better job than one I I can my target was the uh, the air side of it you know with the uh, F-16s and so on because I'm I have a considerable amount of knowledge about uh, military operations and, and uh, civilian operations in the air. One of my good points. <laughs> but uh, one of my problems here at home is uh, I'm out of, way out in the country, and my only hookup is, uh, is dial-up. So, you have our uh, condolences, Don. Yeah, and uh, I'm hoping pretty soon high speed is supposed to be coming through here in the next six or eight months, and I'll have it as soon as I can get my hands on it. But the problem is, is uh, this particular um, uh, shot that was taken by the... Uh, the deputy's camera in his car, which the car was stationary, they, and they actually, I think they aimed the car right at it to get a shot of it, uh, mm-hmm. which seems to be a red light. It takes a while for it to download, and it can, on my computer, it could take two hours, right. you know. So does that red light, does that red light, uh, I saw one still of that. It looks just like a red ball of light on a, on yeah. a display monitor. Does that match up with what was reported by Steve Allen and these other people who saw the earlier well, yeah, episode? Yeah, a lot of them reported red-colored lights and uh, mm-hmm. orange. Uh, quite often the lights are sort of a goldish orange or amber color. Mm-hmm. And uh, that goes that goes back to the history of this thing for, you know, decades. Um, you know, Shea Harbor, instance, same thing. But aircrafts have red lights on them, but they're not specifically... Right huge red lights. They're usually a tiny small light or a red strobing light on the belly of the aircraft. That's when pilots are flying in what's called IFR conditions, nighttime flying or in uh, weather conditions. And they have it on the belly of the aircraft. That helps another aircraft identify it as being in an IFR condition. So, um, And it's usually either a revolving beacon or a strobe. It doesn't just glow red. The glow red light is on the left, left wing tip of an airplane. Glow green is on the right hand wing right. tip. Plus, nowadays, they add in a couple of white strobe lights on right beside those, which double flash on either side, and, you know, double flash left, double flash right, double flash. And you can really see them from quite a distance away. And right. a lot of aircraft have a, a sustaining, steady white light uh, to the rear at the tail, very tail end of the aircraft. Uh, this is so you can, can tell whether the aircraft's coming at you or going away from you. And the other light is a, a strobing or a revolving beacon at the top of the tail, which could be red forward and uh, white light uh, rearward. There's a lot of different lights, but they all have to comply with navigational uh, lights that uh, under the uh, federal regulations in the United sure. States and Canada and so on sure. and so forth. Yeah, so basically there's no way that you would conceivably look at the lights on an airplane and see something that would be so anomalous to make you think, well, that's strange. Especially if you're a yeah. pilot and you're looking at this, you're probably pretty familiar with these configurations. And when you yeah. see something that falls outside of it, that's something that would instantly register. Yeah, you're exactly right. These things, they're not big, huge, arresting, all right? Um, navigation lights on airplanes are, uh, as a matter of fact, usually at night if they're any distance away, you've got to work at seeing them. 
if it's up close, even still, it's not a big red light. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's only a tiny little thing about the, you know, the size of a quarter on most uh, general aircraft. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, civilian small light airplanes and so on. But even the big commercial jets, the lights aren't that big on them. It's not this huge, humongous uh, size of the bigger than the size of the full moon type of uh, blood red light you'd see that's right. just displayed and seems to haze out, you know, around the edges. That's unusual. And uh, right. I don't know why these things display lights the way they do. Quite often they display blue lights, and that's a right. military thing. But uh, these are big blue lights, you know, mixed in with green and yellows and golds and reds and whites and everything else. You know, nothing that conforms to any place. kind of right. Nothing that conforms to any kind of established aeronautic standard. Basically. No, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And these been been going around now since about the, the late twenties and, and right. early thirties when they first started putting navi- regulated navigation lights on airplanes mm-hmm. around the world mm-hmm. because they all had to pretty much stand, uh, come up with the same standard you know once you got into international flight you know air uh, passenger airplanes and so on but yeah you're right it's just it's it's just tr- truly unusual and what i've seen as first blush as you mentioned there from that uh, camera that was in the uh, deputy's car right it doesn't look like anything you would expect to see in an airplane <laughs> you know right exactly Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bedney. We're talking to Canadian UFO researcher Don Ledger, who has done extensive exploration of a large number of cases in eastern Canada. He's written several books, including Maritime UFO Files. He's covered the Shag Harbor case that we'll get into in a moment. But right now, we've also been focusing on the recent events in Texas. Not so far from where Bush is. That's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, but I think people are definitely trying to make tenuous uh, connections between these UFOs and the fact that Crawford happens to be there. You know, Bush was not there when these things were seen. And uh, sure, I, I would find it hard to believe that anybody outside of this realm, shall we say, would find uh, that man to be particularly interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. I almost made a political comment there. That's not what we want to do. We on do not <laughs> permit political comments oh. except yeah. for the previous one and the one that will well, follow. Yeah, no, no, there'll be no more of those. But, Don, um, as far as the Stevensville stuff goes, uh, have there been any conclusions about what this wasn't? I mean, is there a possibility that given that we have so much uh, uh, 
air action going on down there, so much you know, sort of aeronautical action. Could we be talking about some kind of an unknown military craft that was being tested? That's an area that I spend a lot of time trying to refute that, and I've actually I give talks, you know, on black triangles or flying triangles, whatever you want to call them, the big ones. Right. Um, I've given uh, talks on that as recently as last year, or late in the fall in Boston, October, I think it was, early in the fall, I guess. But anyway, um, I, you know, I do a lot of exploration in that area. I get magazines. I'm, 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 I'm hooked into Jane's. I'm hooked into Aviation Week and space technology and so on. There really isn't anything that indicates that we have anything, or actually you guys, to be more specific, uh, the United right. States has anything that is any more than exotic conventional. In other words, we don't have, they don't have the SR-71 anymore. But I suspect that they've replaced that with something else. I'm almost positive they're flying something around that's uh, faster, goes probably higher, but it's still conventional technology. I mean, it's just an old growth of the technology we already have, which means thrust, right. uh, jet thrust or ramjets or scramjets or whatever you're using. So I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate at all to believe that they have uh, an aircraft, you know, probably the size of maybe the old uh, uh, SR-71 Blackbird, and uh, that can travel at, say, Mach 5 or 6 or something like that. But that doesn't account for people's reporting of, Huge objects crossing sure. the sky that, you know, can be anywhere up to a mile across or the size of a couple of football fields, which is often, uh, often uh, described, and then traveling very slowly. Hey, you know, they're up there maybe 500 feet or even a couple hundred feet. Look at the Hudson Valley sightings back in the early 80s. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. My point is, if they had... If somehow the military was hiding the secret technology, which they're doing a piss poor job of, if you want to say they're hiding it, because they seem to be right. showing them off over every major center in the world. Yeah. And uh, why are they spending so much money now developing uh, lighter than air technology, which is, you know, lifting bodies, in other words, blimps, which they had been doing. There's a one they call the 791, the Lockheed 791, which looks like three, the Fuji balloons, you know, the Fuji blimps you see over the sports, or Goodyear blimps. Looks like three of them joined together side by side. It's about hmm. 200 feet long. They can't fly it in over a five-knot wind. They can only taxi at seven knots, and it takes off and climbs up and goes along at about 80 miles an hour, and then they bring it in land. And this thing they're working on now, they spent something like $15 million developing this one with a $600 million budget to develop it further. Uh, I think the, the uh, eventual outcome of this is supposed to be something that they can hang up there at 100,000 feet with radar and infrared and everything else on it so that they can use it in lieu of AWACS and downward-looking spy satellites well over the horizon from where the, uh, the battle area is and probably over in another country so that the uh, people can't shoot at it because right, they're shooting sure. at something over a, 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 another country. You know, Someone else's airspace. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and spy on these things. This is not expected to come to fruition probably for another good 10 years yet to be able to. Mm -hmm. And these things will probably be quite, quite large. But the thing about it, I think people have a problem with scale, Don. And, you know, I, I tell people, yeah. look, if you look at a, a, a decent-sized cruise ship, for example, that you would take a week-long cruise on, those are about 1,000 feet long. That's a fifth yeah, right, of a mile. Yeah. We, we have nothing that big in the air at all. Period. No, that's right. Nobody, nobody does. And 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 then to say, okay, I mean, just a thousand feet long, we have nothing in the air. 
five times that size? We are far yeah, exactly. from that point. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's that. Plus the fact is, if 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 the United States uh, military already has these things. Why are they spending uh, hundreds of million dollars more to redevelop them? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, actually, and don't I go down. Uh, Don, the problem is if you go down that line of logic, uh, actually, you could make a point that would make sense because they're burning big money in piles, and if they could burn even bigger piles of money on nonsensical stuff, they're likely to do it. So the problem is, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I think we, we would agree with you, but to make an argument out of that, you're, you're, you're going down a slippery slope there. Yeah, it's been a listen, crazy the, public, months. the public might believe that, but that's not the case. Right, right exactly. now, the United States Air Force is suffering because they need new aircraft, large numbers of them, all right? Their budget, they're hanging on the edge right now. I was reading an article in the New York Times the other day where they've got, they need another, uh, something like another three or four billion dollars. No, it's more than that. I can't no, way remember the that. numbers. But the, really, they're still flying with old technology. You've got F-15s are breaking down now. They've already turfed the F-14s. They're not using them in the Navy anymore. F-15s are having problems. Anyway, look, we, we don't want to make this Aeronautic Week show because, I mean, people, our, our audience is going to go, okay, this is starting to sound like the UFO Hunter show yeah, where they're no. just going after what airplanes. To, what I'm trying to get across here is the point that yeah. uh, I don't see them spending all this money to redevelop something they already have. All right, right exactly. it doesn't make any sense to me. And if you really look at the budget, I know there's that black budget out there of uh, everybody talks about a $350 billion, but that's pretty much spoken for. It's all eaten up. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But the fact of the matter is we don't even have the technology to fly anything that big right. and keep it up there. Move it at 10 miles an hour and then go scooting out of there at Mac 2. It's just impossible. Right. Uh, we don't even have pilots that could uh, take that kind of acceleration, you know. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. No question yeah, there. Okay. Um, but I'm passionate about that end of it. Sorry if I get a little moldy. <laughs> no, that's all right. No, I think it's important that you qualify that indeed uh, it, it's it's highly unlikely, probably impossible, that when people are reporting something a mile long in the air, that's just not ours. We don't know what it is, but it's not going to be one of ours. Well, the icing on the cake, as I said before, is... Why are they flying them over the city? Why are they flying it over Phoenix, per se, for instance? Why did they fly them around uh, in the Hudson Valley area for three and four years with thousands of people reporting these things in one of the largest terminal radar control areas in the world, right, right where they're a hazard to navigation, you know, and where they could be picked up? And right. Why are they doing that if they're trying to keep them secret? Well, they're not, and that, that's that's clearly the yeah. answer. And not only that, okay. but I think we could also we could also come up with the idea that whatever is in those things, doesn't really care that it's being seen. Now, they, no, they don't, don't seem they to do. have a problem with that. Yeah. Well, you know, any more than uh, we care whether Nancy's is when we walk by her. I don't, you know, exactly. I'm almost at that point myself. You know, but uh, there you go. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think we probably explored that uh, enough as to, um, you know, totally get people confused. <laughs> so <laughs> no, no, no. That's I, my I take think, on it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And no, I think that gives people a good understanding of the fact that yeah, there 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 has been something happening in Texas, and as usual, the Air Force has spun a story. And uh, done some kind of damage control. So that that mystery continues. And of course, uh, what is interesting is that it received the press attention it did. Yeah, maybe exactly. maybe five years ago, it might not have, as we're now for some reason. And what do you think about that, Don? Why do you think there is more mainstream press coverage at this point about well, episodes like what happened in Stevensville? To be honest with me, I was slightly shocked by the press coverage that it did get. And not mm -hmm. only that, fairly decent press coverage for a change. You know, not the woo-woo, you know, let's have a little snicker at the expense of, uh, you know, the, the witness type of uh, uh, reporting. You know, the Angela Joyner there, she uh, she did a pretty good job of bringing this stuff out. And um, 
But it was picked up by AP and uh, UP and all the rest of them, United Press, International, UPI. And uh, it went you know, all, over, all over the country and up here in Canada and over in England mm-hmm. and so on, uh, you know, in Western Europe. So, you know, it's uh, it, somehow it got legs. I think it probably just appealed to the uh, sense of wonder of the public, you know. And uh, you got to wonder. I, I think some of the unsung heroes in this particular business are witnesses. Because who takes more uh, crap than witnesses do? Oh yeah, you know, particularly uh, from the from the media. Even uh, you know, Larry King got involved in there. Of course, he brought in uh, some, you know, his. Uh, you had to have his, his usual uh, suspects. Yeah. Yeah. McGaha yeah, and Shermer. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. McGaha and Shermer, the uh, the the clueless bunch. Um, yeah. Well, McGaha, no, I, I think it's a plan anyway. Well, you have to wonder about that guy, um, the stuff that he came out with. And the thing about it, I think that's probably fair to say that the media has sort of changed their view of this since January of 2007 when you had the reporting of the O'Hare episode from the November yeah. 2006. It almost seems like that created a new wave of media interest to the point where last year you had Larry King doing multiple shows on the topic. And, of course, part of that was the 60th anniversary of the Roswell situation. Uh, he did a show about that. But then you had people like Leslie Keene and, and, uh, and James Fox with the press conference that happened in Washington, I think it was last right. November, where you had really credible people coming, getting up on a stage. Um, unlike the Disclosure Project stuff that had happened years before with Greer, uh, you yeah. didn't have poison pills in with the good stuff. You know, Keen and and, uh, and and Fox did a very admirable job. And so, you know, that also created, I think, uh, an impetus for people looking at this in a serious way, which yeah. is, you know, obviously for us it's a good thing. It means maybe we can have a more reasonable conversation about this topic, um, even in, in the light of the fact that you have people like, Cusinich, uh, who got up there and you know makes an announcement and then tries to sort of play it down and make a joke about it in real yeah. time, which of course fell flat on its face. But uh, you know, at least at least you heard the word UFO mentioned on in national in the national media. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, what's the old term? Any publicity is good publicity. Is that how it goes, Gene? Something like that depends, of course. I mean, nowadays, I guess you could even be a convicted felon. And in some circumstances, you know, like a G. Gordon Liddy, become very, very wealthy as a result. It's kind of sad. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah, that's the way of the world these days. But it seems no, frustrating. I, usually what I try to do, and I'm just briefly back to aviation again, is to try to educate. Uh, most UFO researchers really have little, uh, little grasp of how aviation works and about the rules of the air and so on and so forth. They're very important. Right. You remember the Cataray sightings over in New Jersey? No. Back in, hmm? I think it was 1995 or 96. And, uh, well, you know, it was uh, a bunch of ultralights went up and flew around that night and were shining lights down. And they had, you know, mm. yeah, sure they had like two and three hundred people pulled over on the, on the I-95 looking at it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but if you know anything about aviation, it's just, it's a ludicrous explanation just to throw that out there. And I don't want to get into the reasons why. And we're, we're talking back in 95. Same thing happened in the Hudson Valley sightings of, uh, you know, they toted uh, ultralights being up at night, you know, with a bunch of lights hooked onto them. Uh, again, it's ridiculous. 
these things don't even carry electrics. Maybe they carried a battery aboard or something. But th- these are people uh, at, at some, usually earlier in their in their career as an ultralight pilot, have very little in the way of uh, flying experience. They're not pilots. They don't have a pilot's lighting. They are piloting something, but they don't have a valid pilot's license. They use an ultralight license. Some of them go on to get their uh, full-blown license. They can only fly under certain conditions, you know, and, uh, and one of them is not at night. Now, so all of a sudden, all of the, these people decide to go up and fly around in eight or ten of these things and risk their license, not to mention a huge uh, federal fine and being charged for flying in a, an air traffic control zone where they're not supposed to be and so on. It's it's just, you know, the, the, you say that to any problem, they say, oh, that's nonsense. Who would who'd be crazy enough to do that? It's, you know, it's deadly. It, this is deadly stuff. You can get killed doing this sort of thing, you know. Just for a stunt, I don't think so. But anyway, I'll get off that. That was just an example. This is what you run up against in aviation, you know, but... As for down in uh, Stephenville, Texas, people are seeing things. You know, usually you'll get the other people that come out of the woodwork and say, well, they probably saw some airplanes and so on and so forth. Well, there's all kinds of jets and everything flying around in Texas. I mean, they've got something like 10 Air Force airfields down there, uh, you know, Air Guard and the rest of them. How come they're not reporting them all the time? Why aren't they doing that 365 days a year, you know? Reporting these things, if why all of a sudden right now does everybody all of a sudden jump, you know, jump into the ring and say, right, "Hey, sure. I saw something." You no, know, it's not. It's nonsensical. And and the bottom line for me is that when you've got something really big in the sky and it's making no sound, well, uh, we're sort of done. Uh, now, look, let's let's qualify that for a moment. If you have something that's a series of lights in the sky that aren't moving very quickly. Yeah. that uh, then sort of fade out. Well, okay, you could maybe make the argument you've got something conventional there, but if you've got some lights and they're moving quickly, real yeah. quickly, and there's no sound, that combination is a very compelling one to tell us that we're not looking at something that's current human technology. Now, qualifier, that doesn't mean that it's quote-unquote extraterrestrial technology. Everybody loves to make that leap. But you know what? This is a complicated topic. And the best we can do at this point is to say you've got non-human technology. And, of course, that in of itself, very compelling. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Now, what's compelling, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we have Don Ledger, UFO researcher. We've been talking about quite a number of different things related 
partly to the Stevensville, Texas sightings, and then related instances, and certainly the fact that, like in a state like Texas, where people are used to having planes fly over their homes and businesses all the time, they're accustomed to them, so when something anomalous happens, you know, it's going to take something really anomalous to gather their attention, and that's an important point. David, do you think we should talk to Mr. Ledger now about Shag Harbor? Absolutely. I think we've uh, we've beaten Texas to death, which is okay. something I'd often like to do, actually. <laughs> Texas to death. Um, but, Don, obviously, you've written a whole book on a case that uh, our friend Paul Kimball highlighted in his Best Evidence documentary as one of the top ten cases uh, of all time, in his opinion, and the experts he spoke to. And, in fact, you're featured in the documentary talking about it. Mm-hmm. Give, uh, give our listeners some setup about Shag Harbor and what happened there. Well, Shag Harbor incident happened back in um, on October the 4th. That was a Wednesday, 1967. And the actual event itself began probably around 20, 25 after 11 that evening on October the 4th. That night there had been a mini flap, if you want to call it that, of UFO sightings to uh, the west, southwestern end of Nova Scotia, about halfway from the, about the halfway midpoint of the province to the to the western end of it. Uh, if you look at Nova Scotia on the map, you'll see it's sort of shaped like a lobster without the big claws. But anyway, uh, if you took the lobster tail part of it, that would be pretty much the end of the province that, that had the UFO sightings. And indeed, Shag Harbor is down at the uh, south uh, eastern tip of that uh, that particular prominence. It began with um, if Laurie Wickens, who was the original a witness who phoned this in. If he hadn't made that original phone call, probably none of this would the the incident would never have been recorded to the extent that it was. Uh, just to set it up, the uh, it was a nice clear night, lots of stars, uh, little wind, cool. This was in October, after all, in Nova Scotia offshore. Uh, you know, because sticking out in the Atlantic there. And particularly in Shea Harbor, because right at the, the very bottom end of Nova Scotia. You have fishermen by the name of Laurie Wickens driving along in his car. He's got his best friend with him at the time. And uh, they both have their girlfriends, and there's another girl in the back seat. The three girls are in the back seat. And they're coming back from a place called Cape Sable Island, where there was, uh, which is about maybe 13 miles away from uh, Shag Harbor, where there was some kind of a community hall meeting that night. Now, Laurie Wickens was 18 years old. He was a fisherman even at that time and had been for a couple of years. While they were to the east side of Shag Harbor, uh, it's kind of hard to do this without a chart, on old highway number three, they noticed uh, what appeared to be a line of lights traveling along in the same direction they were going. They were in a horizontal attitude at that point. These were uh, large gold or amber-colored lights, fairly large anyway, uh, spaced uh, apart, and they seemed to be flashing sequentially from uh, one end to the other and then back, you know, and uh, reversing and going backwards and then reversing and going the other direction. So they kept this in sight. Now, Lori was driving, so he had to be careful of the road because it's a windy old road. It's still the same now as it was then. They kept it in sight, and then it started to curve around in front of the car. It was up quite high. He figured it about about a 50 to 60-degree elevation when they saw it. And uh, but it, now it tipped down, or it appeared to the line of lights appeared to tip down as if they were head for the ground, or in this particular case, they figured towards the water in Shag Harbor, just in front of them. So they continued into into Shag Harbor. Now Shag Harbor's not wasn't very big then. It's not much larger now. It's a very small little fishing community, a working fishing community. They kept the uh, lights in, in in the windshield, 
as they went through Shag Harbor, came out the other side of it. That only probably took about 40 seconds to do that. And uh, at this time, these things are heading for the tree line. Now, just as they went down behind the tree line, they curved around behind the, beside the tree line themselves and came out into an area, a flat area that's right on the coast, uh, where there's a place called what was originally called the Irish Moss Plant. It's still there. It's a small square place about maybe 60 feet square and a couple of stories tall and uh, it was on, a, on the edge of a gravel parking lot that's right on the water. So they were able to haul right off and uh, pull into this gravel parking lot and they were right on the, uh, on the shore looking out over the water. And when they got out of the car, one of the girls uh, later on uh, testified to the fact that she heard what she thought was a whoosh and a, or a flash and a bang. And uh, they got out of the car, all of them, and they w- looked out on the water and they could see what looked like uh, sort of a dark thing on the water with a pale yellow light drifting on the water and it was sort of drifting away from them. At the point they first saw it, it was about 800 feet away from them. And the drifting uh, either with the tide or under its own uh, power uh, away from them uh, offshore in uh, between what's called Odor Island and the shores of Shag Harbor, the, 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 the western approach into Shag Harbor. Quick, mm-hmm. I hate to interrupt you, but quick question. So you've got lights that are floating on the water. Ports one light. One light, okay. Yeah. So is the one light does it is it steady on the water or is it moving with the wave motion? Uh, it seems to be steady on the water uh, on the on the object. Uh, there was no wave motion. It was pretty calm that night. It was a calm night. All right. Yeah. Um, even so, it's uh, there. There's what is always even when it's calm. There's a swell on the ocean. You know that. Well, that's what. Long, yeah, exactly. Long period swells, as right. they call them. And uh, but this thing just seemed to be sitting on it, and there was a, like a darkness underneath of it. They thought between the light and the water. Mm. So they're alarmed at this point. They don't know what what they've seen here, but they've had their suspicions. Um, and uh, their suspicions are that they just saw an airplane crash into the water in Shag Harbor, or just off in the sound at, at Shag Harbor. That's what they call it, the sound. And right. um, so uh, concerned, they, they get back in the car, and Lori drives uh, another quarter of a mile uh, further on down into what's called Lower Woods Harbor and uh, to a gas station where there's a pay phone. And he calls the RCMP back further to the east in uh, Barrington Passage. That's where the, the nearest RCMP detachment is. That's what they call the station. And uh, he contacts uh, Corporal Wicker, uh, Victor Rubicki, who's the um, on duty that night. RCMP, by the way, being Royal Canadian Mount- Mounted Police, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I forget that some people might not know that. <laughs> I'm so used to it myself, you know. No, I know. But anyway. Just, just... But anyway, they uh, he con- they contacts him, and Laurie says that they th- they th- him and his friends thought they just saw an airplane crash in to the sound beside Craig Shake Harbor. First thing he says to Laurie says, "Have you been drinking, Laurie?" Because he knew Laurie, you know. And uh, Laurie, of Laurie's only 18 years old. Back in those days, you weren't allowed to drink legally at 18. You still aren't. It's good to be 19 now in Nova Scotia. But anyway, uh, he said he got kind of angry about that. And said, "No, I'm not. I've been drinking," and. Uh, so uh, his other phone starts to ring, uh, were Vicky's phone. He had two or three lines into the detachment at the time. And he says to uh, Lori, give me the phone number there. I want you to stay at the pay phone, and I'll get right back to you. He answers the other phone, and um, this is a woman. Her name is uh, Marie Banks, and she lives on Megagarren Point, which is practically right alongside of where they are at the Irish Moss plant, maybe a tenth of a mile away, you know, a few hundred yards away. And uh, she says, I think I just saw an airplane crash into the sound out here in front of my place. 
and he says, oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, as soon as he gets finished with that call, then another a man phones in from Bear Point, which is right beside, on the other side of Shag Harbor, to the east side of Shag Harbor, and says he thought he saw an airplane coming down into either Shag Harbor or the Sound. It looked like it was crashing. And then another woman calls in and said, her and her daughter were over Cape Sable Island. This is about 13 miles away, and they saw something coming down out of the sky. It looked like an airplane crashing down somewhere over work towards Shag Harbor. So now he's taking it seriously. And he figures, oh, I've got an airplane crash in my hand. So he calls back Lori on the, on the, at the payphone, tells him to get back in his car and get back to the Irish Moss plant and keep an eye on it because, you know, he wants to get some assets to the area. So anyway, he calls on his, uh, after he hangs up, uh, Rubicki calls his uh, two RCMP officers that he actually has down in Woods Harbor who are staking out a, a clearing or something down there looking for deer jackers, which deer poachers, as you might know them in the States, uh, you know, hunting for late at night for deer right, using sure. a powerful flashlight mm-hmm. and then shooting them. And there was a big business in that back in those days. But anyway, he calls them back on the car radio, and they come roaring back. He probably passed right beside uh, uh, Lori Wickens and, and the bunch back at the Yarish Moss plant. Uh, of course, they didn't know why they were going back to the detachment. When they got back to the detachment, where Bicky was coming out, putting his coat on, and explained to them that he thought we, they might have an airplane crash in their hands down near Shake Harbor. So they all they go heading off down to uh, to the Yarish Moss plant. They all know where that is. And um, in the meantime, coming again, uh, about the same time, Laurie and, uh, uh, or maybe shortly after, Laurie and, uh, and, and his friends were uh, heading into Shag Harbor. Another couple of guys were coming back from the same um, function over in Cape Sable Island in their car, or in uh, uh, Dave Hendricks' car, Hendricks, I should say, on the east side of Shag Harbor again. They saw the same thing. I'm trying to keep this short because this, this as you know, when you heard yeah, this, no. There's like in, uh, right, right. Yeah, I had an hour and a half, and I still ran out of time. <laughs> but uh, so I'll try to keep this short. I think I think it's important that we keep this to, you know, sort of the real the real important overview. I think too much granular detail of any any aspect of it, um, obviously, can be a distraction. So sure, go go right anyway, ahead. We'll, we'll bring you in if you go too far. I have to set it up for you anyway. So you've got these okay. other two guys coming along. They see the same thing. Eventually, what happens? Is uh, one of the one of the guys in that particular car there, uh, Norm Smith? Uh, uh, he ends up with his father going down to the Irish Moss plant, and the Mountie cars are there at the time. The Rory Wickens. By this time, other people have pulled into the area, uh, curious as to what's going on, because you got a couple of Mountie cars there with their lights flashing and everything. It's right, right. beside the highway, so you got to be careful. So they got the lights flashing, and um, so a bunch of them are looking out on the water here, and they're saying, "Well, what the heck is this we're seeing?" They do see the pale yellow light, and on the Mountie said it looked like it was on top of a. Uh, some kind of a black thing about 60 miles or 60 sorry 60 feet wide maybe 10 feet thick hmm. and um so while they're watching this thing uh, uh corporal verbicki decides that he better see if he can get some fishing boats out there to have a look you know to see if maybe there's a wreckage drifting around there might be survivors or people killed or whatever sure um and in the meantime he sends uh one of the other mounties uh ron o'brien out to use it in those days, they didn't have the kind of tech, uh, communication technology we have nowadays. So they had to use, they had to wake people up, you know, and use their phones. Uh, so um, where Bicky went off looking for, um, in, the, in the meantime, uh, it looked like this thing sunk because the light went out. They weren't sure if it sunk or the light went out uh, by object or design or whatever. So uh, it's getting uh, serious now. One of the Mounties is left back. That's Ron Pond to interview witnesses. 
Corporal or RCMP Officer O'Brien is sent off to call the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax to see if they got any aircraft missing, and where Bicky goes looking for a couple of fishing boats to go out so they can do a search. They accomplish all of this. They get two fishing boats um, out on the water. Uh, they had to go back to the Government Wharf, which is uh, a little bit further back in Shag Arbor, and they go out on the water. They're crossing over, and they come across a huge patch of foam. Now, fishermen know what sea foam looks like. All of them swear that this had no relationship to sea foam. If anything, it looked like shaving cream on the water, about three to four inches thick, with a glittery yellow surface on it. And uh, it appeared to be about 80 feet wide or two boat lengths in width, and they figured about a half a mile long. They weren't fussy about sailing into it. They sailed into it or, you know, drove into it. These things are motorized fishing boats, about 45 feet long. Yeah, and uh, it was very quiet out on the water. Everybody's expecting to see bodies floating around or maybe some survivors or pieces of wreckage or something. Instead, they come across the phone. So they didn't attribute too much importance to the foam. It was unusual, but they figured possibly this had something to do with uh, jet fuel or maybe aviation fuel interacting with seawater. Sure. And it would create this foam. They didn't know because none of them right. were pilots or anything like that. Right. Sure. So anyway, um, uh, they did try to take some samples of it. There was a dip net used. A couple of guys put their arms in the water, and they came up uh, just slick. They couldn't seem to pick the stuff up out of the water. There was a sort of a sulfurous smell around, some of the fishermen attested to, um, and also some uh, roiling going on in the water, too. That was of concern. They searched around out there looking for about an hour. Now, Don, um, when we have these guys out in this boat and they run into this weird foam, where is the UFO while this is going on? Is this still sitting on top of the water in sight? No, it had disappeared. It had submerged. Yeah, right. You know, as noted from shore, they weren't sure if the light went out or if it sunk or whatever. And don't mm-hmm. forget, now everybody's still thinking it's a crashed airplane. Right. The, so uh, they're not they're not seeing any light from the surface. They're running into this foam, but yeah. there's no light below the surface of the water. They don't see anything anything below any any light at that point at all. Okay. And all right, I, so I, I want to clear that up. It, I want to make it absolutely sure, uh, clear that the fishermen all knew all of the buoys and so on and so forth that are around there, right. buoys as they're called, that might have lights on. They, they you, know, it, you know, eliminated any of them as being the suspect for this pale yellow light that was out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and as I was about to say, uh, the Coast Guard Cutter had showed up from Cape Sable Island and uh, with a message for uh, Ron O'Brien, the Mountie, who had called the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, which is called RCC, who coordinates any rescues on the East Coast all the way out in the middle of the Atlantic. And uh, that's not affecting, uh, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard or whatever. Sure, right, right. And gotcha. quite often they work together. But anyway, it came back and he had a message from RCC saying that they've done a phone search and a record search for any missing aircraft all up and down the coast. Now, that would be pretty much all the way from Labrador right down to Boston or, or Norfolk, Virginia. There's an overlapping thing, just to make sure, because, you know, there's military aircraft and so on and so forth traveling out in the Atlantic from both of, both of our countries, and uh, and civilian aircraft, too, passing over, going overseas. Nothing was reported Nothing. missing. They right. couldn't find right. a, couldn't find any, any evidence of a report of missing aircraft, whether it was civilian, private, you know, private civilian, commercial, or military. So, they're all wondering at this point, well, what the heck were we looking for? The search went on in the next day. Now, in the meantime, we've got a bit of a buzz going on in uh, in Ottawa, where uh, this is our capital city in Canada. Uh, the Air Desk in Ottawa, that was the Royal Canadian Air Force at the time. That's what it was called, the RCAF. The Air Desk, they used to handle UFO reports. They'd take them, and then they'd disseminate them to wherever 
they figured they needed to be, they would handle any of this sort of thing. So they uh, contacted uh, what was called Maritime Command in, uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the capital city of Nova Scotia, where I live most of my life, and started to set up a task force to go out and have a look. Uh, initially, divers was what they were looking for. They wanted to see what went on, was on the bottom. There was a wreck down there. Sure. The whole sure. thing sunk, and with all bodies aboard, as it happened at the Swiss air crash. Well, most of them, anyway. That thing blew itself to pieces. But anyway, in this particular case, they have to take it seriously. So there's radio traffic flowing back and forth, documentation and so on. I want uh, to uh, iterate here that this portion of the Shag Harbor incident, there is absolutely nobody who will ever contest that because it's so well documented. You know what, uh, this is a good point here, maybe we should do our hourly break because this is the ongoing communication back and forth about what's being seen here and we'll pursue all that and more in Hour 2 of the Powercast featuring this week Don Ledger. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. This week we're talking with Don Ledger, a UFO researcher who has written a few books. Dark Object, the Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia Incident is, uh, I believe, his latest book. And we're talking about the Shag Harbor Incident with Don. Now, Don, uh, in doing some reading about this, it seems that uh, there are there are almost two layers to this incident. There's the the one layer of it where, for example, there's coverage in uh, Paul Kimball's Best Evidence uh, documentary. But it seems like that perhaps is leaving out part of the story. It looks like the Canadian Navy, perhaps even the U.S. Navy, got involved in this episode in, in searching for this object. Can you give us a little bit of a of an overview of what actually happened? when the real search started? Well, after the initial search, as we discussed, talked about earlier about the fishing, mm -hmm. after an hour gone by, I mentioned about the uh, Coast Guard cutter coming over. By this time, also uh, several other fishing boats had joined the search, and they had about a maximum of the six out there that night, plus the Coast Guard cutter. Right. Just crossing over the sound. The sound's about uh, maybe three and a half miles long by about a mile and a half wide. So they were doing a pretty, pretty extension coverage. They were looking for bodies or, or whatever, because they're firmly convinced this was an airplane crash. And then, of course, 
we find out that uh, there was no aircraft missing anywhere, there's no passenger airliners in particular. So um, they're wondering then what they're looking for. We go to the air desk in Ottawa, uh, which is handled UFO reports. This was uh, the air desk was run by the Royal Canadian Air Force at the time, um, uh, RCAF, and. Um, they started, uh, at this instance, the uh, fellow who was manning the air desk was squadron leader Bain, William Bain. And he um, put certain uh, certain actions into play, if you want, want to say that, um, uh, by contacting Maritime Command in Halifax. This mm-hmm. is where the Canadian Navy is based. It was also uh, an Air Force base here as well back in 1967. Canadian Navy still there. Uh, aircraft carriers and the destroyers and um, submarines even uh, in the day. And uh, their first concern was what to find out what was on the bottom. Uh, they did uh, dispatch a couple of uh, naval vessels down towards the area, although they weren't necessarily going to come into the sound because it's pretty shallow in there, good for fishing boats, but not for destroyers and so on. Uh, they also uh, sent a request to have um, divers sent to the area so they could do an extensive bottom, bottom search. Uh, this would have been maritime, um, or pardon me, the uh, fleet diving unit in Halifax at, uh, at, a, at Staticona Naval Base. And um, so, now don't forget, we're quickly into October the 5th, which is a Thursday. Uh, we're only <laughs> half day. an hour ahead, over a half an hour. Ahead. So we're now into Thursday, and all of these commands are uh, radio traffic, swollen uh, teletypes and so on, flowing between Ottawa and Halifax at Maritime Command and Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa. So, uh, some of those documents had already termed this thing as a UFO because they knew they didn't have an aircraft missing. But they're calling it a UFO and uh, early on a dark object spotted on the water. That's where we got the title from uh, for the book. And right. um, in their documents, now these are, you know, we've got the documents. Anybody can see them if they want them. Uh, they're uh, available through the library loaner system on microwave or microfilm, except that we were lucky enough to get them earlier on before they had this uh Act where people's names and privacy were being protected, so they blacked all those out. We, we have mm-hmm. the older documents. Anyway, that aside, things were happening in a hurry here. Then they uh, did get the uh, uh, the divers uh, into uh, some trucks. They wanted to get them down there in a hurry, so they didn't uh, bring them down by water. Uh, they dove off of the um, Coast Guard cutter and a couple of fishing vessels. They were on online by Friday, early uh, by about noontime on Friday. They they finally showed up. In the meantime, there were some uh, RCMT divers who were doing some initial diving uh, on Thursday, but uh, there was only a couple of them. They didn't do. Uh, uh, a heck of a lot other than do a, a bit of a skim search along the surface. The water is only about 40 to 50 feet deep there anyway, so it's not a real That's deep. That's not real deep. No, not at yeah. all. Yeah. So um, the, RC, uh, the RCMP had uh, uh, sort of uh, tasked one of the um, fishing boats, plus they were using the Coast Guard cutter to dive off of. But they couldn't do too much of an extension search because they didn't have the equipment the Navy had. Um, so anyway, and uh, by Friday, the Navy had their um, their vessels uh, or had their uh, divers on site, and they they searched the bottom, and they uh, did a fairly extensive search all afternoon for about seven hours, and determined they there was nothing there. They were sweeping with cables, they were diving themselves. And right, so there's on. nothing there. They're pretty sure of that at this point. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. So they wanted to call it off by early that evening, you know, by about six or seven o'clock that night on uh, on Friday evening. And um, so they made a request back. Request came down from Ottawa. Said no, stay on site and keep searching until we tell you to stop. Which was kind of unusual. Kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, 
Well, see, there's all, the site commander at the time, uh, whenever there's a search like that, there's always a civilian site commander if it's inshore, which uh, in this particular case was the RCMP. And Ron O'Brien, got, uh, if you want to say, got stuck with the job, so he was on site. He took the messages from that would come from RC3, RCC in Halifax from Maritime Command, and he passed this on to the divers. He, he clearly remembers this particular uh, order coming through to stay on site. Even though he couldn't understand why, they were pretty sure there was nothing okay, on the bottom. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, this sort of comes into play a little bit later on. We wondered about this. So anyway, uh, when I interviewed uh, Ron O'Brien, he told me this. You know, he said I thought that was really unusual. So anyway, we move along. The divers don't find anything. Uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, CBC, which is a network across Canada, had been down there with Canada cameras and so on, and they had shots of the boats out on the water and the fishermen or the uh, divers going over the side and so on and so forth. Um, and that's still on record. You'll see that in the odd documentary. But anyway, so by uh, Sunday night, they were pretty sure that uh, there was nothing there, and uh, they did call the diving uh, call the divers off the site. So as nothing was happening. In the meantime, the press had really been reporting this. The, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, had it on television. And the, the local, well, the, Mar the, the biggest newspaper in the Maritimes, the Halifax Chronicle Herald, which is a really conservative paper, dedicated two big red headline banners right at the top of their page saying, maybe something con concrete to UFO crash in Sag Harbor, dash RCAF, meaning the Royal Canadian Air Force had said that. And then Ray McLeod continues to put a story up there. This is really amazing to see this in our in that paper, because this is a really conservative rag, right? It's sure. been around for like 150 years. So anyway, uh, that and plus his re news reporting over the next three days and so on, this thing was fairly visible down in Sag Harbor. Okay, well, we're going to... Eventually, the thing stopped. Nothing was uh, found, not a bit of anything, as some of them said. Uh, the reports reflected that and so on and so forth. They couldn't find anything. Didn't know what they saw. Right, we got that. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to make that perfectly clear. Yeah, yeah. No, it's perfectly anyway, clear. Yep. Yeah, so, anyway, um, the whole thing fades out. Not brought up again. Well, there was a, a, a small article about it in, the, um, in Fate magazine. Uh, the next year, and then the uh, National Enquirer actually had a little column on it uh, uh, the next year as well. So All right, but, but we know that there's more to the story, though. Yeah, but I'm going to move on to that, but I just wanted to say it just sort of faded out. So sure. back in 1993, uh, co-author on the book with me, Chris Stiles, was watching a TV show one night, Unsolved Mysteries, saw the thing on Sakura on there, and when he was watching that, it was a rerun, He all of a sudden he remembered this particular incident that happened back in 1967. He was only 12 years old at the time. I was 22, uh, or about 10 years apart in age. So um, he got curious about this and started to research it. I'm making this short now. And uh, dug out some documents, newspaper accounts of the story. Eventually he found those and said, ah, so it did happen. I, didn't re I wasn't re recollecting something, you know, that, what, that didn't really happen. So he, at a certain point he joined MUFON, and so did I, and we were about a month apart in our joins. And he contacted me, uh, you know, to get together, since we both lived in the same area in the Halifax area, and uh, to maybe uh, do some, you know, do the field investigations for UFO reports from our area. It's typical, you know. So anyway, we, we got together, and he started telling me about this one he was researching, which was the Shag Harbor incident. He'd been at it for about a year or 14 months at that point. And um, as it went on, he discovered that 
he, he had made a request of a friend of his who, whose father was in the fleet diving unit as an instructor and asked him if any chance that he could go back into their old records and find out who the divers were at Shake Harbor because he wanted to interview them. So he had a list of divers back. And uh, I'm making this quick quick now. Five of them. And uh, he went to the first. The first one was he was in hospital dying of cancer. Another guy had moved away. The third fellow he contacted lived in in, uh, in, in the Halifax area. And he contacted him and over the phone, and he was, you know, very verbal about it, you know, ready to talk, except that he said uh, he hadn't been on any dive in Shake Harbor. And Chris said, well, you know, I got this mm. from uh, Guy Finn. And you know, he says, oh, yeah, I know Guy. And he said, yeah, he said that you were involved in Shake Harbor. And he says, no, no, I never dove in a Shake, uh, you know. Uh, uh, he said, we were off of uh, Shelburne Harbor at that time when the UFO thing was going on in Shake Harbor. And, you know, there's major confusion now with Chris. He said, well, Shelburne is in Queens County, that's, or in uh, Shelburne County, the same as Shake Harbor. You know, I thought there was some confusion there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this guy was, uh, damn it, that, no, this, where the dive they, he had taken uh, place with was off of the mouth of Shake Harbor. Which How is far 20 away? Miles, 23 right. miles northeast of, of Shake Harbor. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get right to the story then. Uh, Chris, uh, through a series of uh, run-ins with some old friends of his, particularly one in particular uh, who was uh, worked at uh, in the circulation department of a newspaper that Chris used to work for, mentioned to him that he said, well, you know, the real story uh, there that time was not down in Shake Harbor, but was at, up in Shelburne when they, they had a couple of uh, UFOs pinned down on the bottom there, and they had naval assets sitting over top of them for a week. And um, so Chris didn't know what to make of this because uh, it was sort of taken away, even as exciting as it yeah, was, was taken weird. away from the Shake Harbor. Sure. And um, But in the meantime, another guy pops up. And then in the meantime, him and I got together, and I started finding the Mounties and stuff like that. Uh, he hadn't been able to find them, and uh, Lighthouse Keeper and so on, that he hadn't been able to track down, that sort of thing. As it turns out, then, there was apparently some kind of an incident going on at the same time or, you know, shortly thereafter as the Shake Harbor. And so we've never actually been able to pin down the exact times of it, but the witnesses say that it was ongoing at the same time uh, as the Shake Harbor incident had happened. Then an Air Force intelligence um, uh, specialist, a uh, guy working on aircraft, Argus at the time, which was maritime patrol aircraft, said that they were involved in the search for these things, following up the coast had come up from Shag Harbor and into uh, and settled on the bottom just off of um, Government Point at the mouth of Shelburne Harbor. Shelburne Harbor was a secondary harbor, the Halifax Harbor during the Second World War, in case there was another big explosion there. Uh, there's a lot of detail. Uh, I can't get into that right now. All right. Yeah. But anyway, as it turns out, one of the reasons for concern here would probably have been the fact that where these things were sitting was about two miles off what was, wasn't was known at the time to be top secret. Everybody thought they knew what it was, but it turned out to be a top secret base owned by the United States Navy, uh, which is called, uh, they call it Government Point, uh, and, but the, the cover name for it was uh, uh, Canadian Forces Station um, Shelburne. What kind of work was going on there? Well, it turns out that what the work the work that was going on there was the SUSE system, which was the under, underwater microphone system that the United States Navy had planted all over the North Atlantic and was coming ashore at Shelburne. Hmm. And um, they would listen for hull signatures and so on off of submarines and, and naval vessels and anything. And they computerized these sounds so they would recognize them again in the right. future so they would know what Russian assets were on the water. Sure. 
or underwater, as far as that goes. Now, these things right. are all over the world, incidentally, not just there, but they didn't all come ashore at uh, Shelburne. But the ones from the North Atlantic, right down uh, down in towards uh, Norfolk, they all came ashore at Shelburne. Uh, they, uh, the worldwide system, they spent something like $22 billion putting this system in between 1950 and, uh, you know, and uh, about 19... Uh, 88 is the, okay. the cutoff date that we knew of at the time. Right. So anyway, uh, here these things are sitting on the bottom right off this top secret base. Uh, not only is there a microphone system there, but there's a layer of called the Magnetic Anomaly Detection System there, MAD, M-A-D, from Greenland right down the coast to uh, Boston and further on, which was a, 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 a grid of wires laid out on the bottom underwater that could more accurately detect uh, magnetic you know, influence of a, of a hull going over it, motors and sure. so on and so forth. Right. But within a, in a grid system, so they could really pin it right down without having to triangulate by using audio or by using sound. Anyway, so that thing was there too. So now you're going to wonder what the heck is going on here. We didn't know this. We they didn't know that back in the day, but this thing was in was in operation at that time. Right got now, to, now. A, right now you've got a situation done where at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, there are two craft, not one. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, UFO researcher Don Ledger, joining us this evening. We're immersed in the Shag Harbor UFO incident. And as David asks, Don, to craft, right? Right. This is what uh, this is what we call the story now because we don't have documentation. All we have is military personnel telling us. I shouldn't say all we have is quite often we uh, tend to you know acquiesce to our, uh, military personnel when they tell us this sort of thing. They've got no act to grind in this particular instance. So we've got a an uh, electronic intelligence officer, aircraft rec recognition officer who was to follow that 
uh, one of the fellows that Chris had run into, uh, a weapons expert, and God, the other one escapes me right at the moment. It'll come to my come into my head That's after okay. a while. You feel these guys are pretty credible, though, right, Don? Yeah, they're all saying. Oh, I know. The other one was the colonel at uh, the Carroll uh, radar base. Yeah, and they're all credible, uh, and to my way of thinking, anyway, they've they've got no axe to grind here. You know, they don't even want their names mentioned. All right. right. Uh, yeah. One of them actually went on television on the old sightings program that used to be on back in the nineties, and uh, he was backlit, and he told his story as to what had happened. Now, from two separate areas of uh, one the army and the other one the air force we got the we got the story of some object coming in making a half orbit before it came in into earth orbit over siberia and then headed over the arctic circle towards canada now this is 1967 this thing is moving at 7700 miles an hour what do you think would happen if you picked it up on radar some object coming from siberia at 7700 miles an hour you're thinking ICBM, right? You probably would be right. And uh, that's what, exactly what happened. Because of this, they scrambled aircraft out of North Bay, Ontario, and Goose Bay, Labrador, northward, uh, which was a serious thing to do back in those days because these jets, when they, when they went up the intercept, they weren't going to come back. They didn't have the fuel to make it back. If they were going to encounter something up there, they were going to try to shoot at. They were recalled because this thing eventually came somewhere over Ellesmere Island uh, on northeastern Canada, uh, pretty much where the North, uh, magnetic North Pole was at the time. These things came in, it stopped and it hovered. I shouldn't say these, this one stopped and hovered for about three or four minutes and stayed in position. So right then and there, they know they had an anomaly on their hands. It wasn't an ICBM because ICBM can't do that. So, and then it started to proceed in the same, on the same track line at about 4,400 miles an hour and came down over, uh, uh, Labrador, uh, the eastern end of Quebec, then on over New Brunswick, crossed uh, into the Bay of Fundy, over the southwestern tip of Nova Scotia and went down somewhere in Shea Harbor. Um, that was the story we had. Now, apparently, there were two objects concerned here. There were seven ships, six to seven vessels parked over this thing that was about two miles offshore, off of Government Point, off of uh, CFS Shelburne. And um, the divers that dove on this thing, uh, one of the uh, the original diver, who who mentioned it to uh, Chris, who was the only one that would talk about it, said that they dove in these things. They were only in 80 feet of water. They took pictures. They had to get fairly close because the waters on Nova, off Nova Scotia are very, very murky. They're full of plankton and so on. You don't, you can't see 100 feet. You're lucky you can see 20 to 25. But anyway, they were fairly close to these things. The diver said there were creatures down there. There really? were two objects. One appeared to be lending assistance to the other. Creatures? What do you mean by creatures? Well, that's as far as he would go with it. Uh-oh. Uh I don't know what they were. He said there were creatures. They weren't wearing uniforms, diving outfits, anything like that. Uh, well, he, you know, none of this would he he would say. He wouldn't go any further than to say creatures. All right, that's as far as he would go. Now this is on the third, or the second incarnation uh, of, of speaking to this guy. First on the phone, and then the second time when he was going to be recorded and talking live. By this time, he had been contacted, or he, he had contacted the military, and they told him to keep his mouth shut about it. And um, this happened with uh, three of our witnesses. Well, now wait a minute, Don. He had contacted which military? The Canadian military or the U.S. military? No, uh, they would have called and contacted Canadian, and. Um, and they told him to keep quiet about it. Yeah, the, the electronic intelligence pilot. Uh, he was um, he mustered out in 1972 from the Air Force and became a businessman. It, to make a long story short, he oh. uh, he had, you know, just uh, this was kind of important. This one, and this this fellow was supposedly supposedly was supposed to be on the sightings program. 
He was going to be one of the, on the very first episode. They had four on the Shea Garber incident. Anyway, Chris at that time was going to be on it himself. This guy contacted Chris, asked to meet him at a coffee shop at 9 o'clock in the evening. This was in October. Chris shows up there. This guy shows up with sunglasses on and a baseball cap late at night. Well, at 9 o'clock in the evening. Well, it's dark in October 19. You know, in October. Right, around. sure. Weird so stuff anyway, to do, right? hmm? yeah, yeah, and he says to Chris, I can't do the show tomorrow. And uh, uh, that program, and Chris says, oh, that's too bad. I was kind of dependent on you, you know, because your, your testimony is quite compelling, you know. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't, and he left. Anyway, when I had to re-interview the guy, I came back uh, about a year after that when I was writing the book, and I said, uh, I contacted the guy, and then, I, and then it occurred to me, I said, why did you bug, you know, bug out of uh, doing that interview? Oh, he says, I was told to. And he, and he said, you were told to? To make a long story short, what had happened was that night, the night before he was supposed to do it on on a Saturday, and I don't know how anybody would have found out about it because it wasn't a, you know, not that it was a secret, but, I mean, how would they find out that there was a sightings program going to be on? Right, This was sure. the first show. Anyways, he said he got a call when he was eating his supper, and a guy identified himself as a ranking officer at DND in Ottawa, Department of National Defense, DND. And uh, told him that when he had left the Air Force in 1972, that he had signed, um, you know, his de- debriefing papers, and uh, that, you know, they were going to hold him to the fact that he was supposed to keep stuff secret that he was supposed to keep secret, and because he was, after all, an electronic intelligence problem, they were going to hold it to him and told him to keep his mouth shut. As simple as that. He says that's what they said to me, and I said. Well, that sort of frightened you off, and he said, oh, yeah. He said, I'm not going to mess with these guys, you know. So anyway, that's what happened there. Same thing happened with the electronic or with the uh, weapons expert who was backlit on the sightings program. He always was told to keep his mouth shut. It didn't keep, he didn't keep his mouth shut, but he did stay anonymous. And then uh, backed up by a colonel in, in the, uh, who was the commander of Picaro uh, radar base at Picaro Point, uh, Barrington uh, uh, CF, CF uh Canadian Forces Base Barrington was called. So there's this whole thing going on where apparently what was going on here is these guys were diving on these things. They were taking pictures. The photographer now lives in Cornwall, Ontario. He won't talk. One of the other divers is still was uh, uh, still alive at the time of uh, when I, I had to re, re, re-research all of this stuff for the book, right? Then re-interview uh, Chris and so on and so forth to get all this stuff together. And I found a bunch of witnesses myself. We talked to, tried to talk to another diver who was working for a private concern, a salvage unit in uh, working out of Halifax Harbor, and uh, who was one of the divers on that particular dive. He will not. You can't. You, you call him up to the phone or you try to talk to him. He just shuts up and says, "Don't want to talk to." Yeah, goodbye. And that's it. And he doesn't want to talk about it. But he's one of the other divers that had, uh, had dove on the, these particular objects. The, the cameraman who shot this stuff, of course, would have turned it over to his commanding officers. At one particular point, uh, one of the other witnesses remembers hearing an argument between uh, the diver that we had initially interviewed, uh, who we call Harry in the book. And um, his, uh, he was kind of multi, the tough guy. And uh, he had an argument with an officer on uh, at mess on, below decks on this particular ship they were diving off of. Uh, and he overheard this argument because he was sitting there eating himself uh, about talking about this amongst themselves. And the, the officer told him to keep, you know, they should keep their mouth shut. Don't be talking about this amongst yourselves. 
And uh, he said, what I found really kind of weird about this was this guy was an American naval officer that was telling who were on a Canadian naval ship. So there, there was some involvement there. Fishermen remember seeing a couple of Canadian uh, submarines off of Shake Harbor within a couple of days, or within a day of, of the uh, incident happening. And they, they were uh, just off, you know, maybe two or three miles off the, uh, offshore. And uh, also there was uh, incidences where, um, I'm losing my train of thought here, um, with all of this drug Well, you know, what I think what we need to do, Don, is we're starting to rein it in at this point. I, I think our listeners would have some pretty obvious questions here. You've got Canadian Navy uh, sitting with ships, presumably... And, and I'm not clear where the American military comes in on this, but presumably, if you've got Navy ships, Canadian ships sitting over a couple of craft down at the bottom of the harbor, you probably have other, uh, like American ships, coming in to check this out. Are they not trying to engage this at all? I mean, they're sitting there just looking at it. I think that our listeners would have a hard time with that. Like, okay, you, you've got major, 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 I'm sorry? How do you engage something like this? They're sitting on the bottom. What are you going to do to them? <laughs> the evidence uh, of, of American well, ships in the area are, are, are again off of offshore, but this time offshore at Shelburne. Right. I mean, we only had a five mile limit back in those days, rather than two hundred mile limit we have now. Right. So I would suspect that an American naval officer from the base, which is only two miles away, could have been, you know, they could have sent a, a, a boat ashore to pick them up and bring them out, and maybe he would have some concerns there. I, I had no problem with an American officer being there. I mean, see. A lot of Canadians know this, but most Americans probably don't realize that the NORAD, NORAD is a one-third, two-third sharing responsibility for command between mm-hmm. Canada and the United States. It's been going on since 1963. And uh, the radar, you know, all the networks, and you guys pay for about nine-tenths of it. Right. Uh, we're smart that well, way. <laughs> when I anyway, say, and we I give say, it to the lowest bidder, too. Remember that. Right. This is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at the that's news at the and don't forget to check out our website at the where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can host I can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only $7 a month how could you go wrong 
It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Don Ledger joins us, and we're talking about the rather involved story of the Shag Harper UFO case and its aftermath. David. All right, so so here's where it gets complicated, Don. You've got uh, divers who are photographers who are reportedly shooting photographs of these two craft on the on the bottom of the harbor. You got one guy saying they're seeing creatures. You're going to tell me that the Canadian Navy is not sending SEALs down? Basically, you know, guys to go try to get close to these things and figure out what, what these things are? That's where well, I think I have a problem did. with. Well, they did have the divers down there. You know, I mean, they're photographing it. They're down looking at it. You know, that's what they were doing. Um, I don't know. Consider the problem here. How do you capture right. something like this, you know, without uh, having massive assets? Maybe they were hoping to keep it there long enough to, could they, could they, uh, until they could bring assets in that could do the job. You know, some kind of grappling machinery, but would these things let them get away with it? You know, don't forget, there's there's no there's no documentation on this, uh, and I doubt if if there is any that we'll ever get to see it. Right. Do Do you have the equivalent of a Freedom of Information Act up there in Canada? Yeah, it's called the AIC up here, Access to Information. Okay. And it's a uh, yeah. Right. Have you attempted to get anything out of the Canadian military regarding this episode? There's no documentation. We've tried to do that. You can do it through uh, the uh, the archives in Canada, and mm-hmm. uh, it's all on microfilm. And we've gotten everything that they have. That's all. And and they, we know they have stuff there because they've uh, they've sanitized files when we went looking for them, as we went looking for them. When before they'd hand them over, they would sanitize the file, and you end up with one or mm-hmm. two scraps of paper and something that originally held maybe 50 sheets or something. But, um, you know, there again, that's only conjecture on our part. We can't say for sure there were 50 sheets in there. It's, um, you have to understand the, uh, the association between Canadian and American military here and what's going on. And they're both on record as saying that these are of no interest whatsoever. They're not a threat to national security. You're, you know, 20 said that in the United States. The same thing is said here in Canada. The same thing has been said in Great Britain. They've all said the same thing. They're almost like they're puppeting one another, you know, uh, parroting one another and the same thing has happened here Uh, just a quick little one to reinforce you know uh, the uh, electronic intelligence pilot's testimony that he had been contacted and told to keep his mouth shut on a totally different case I was uh, interviewing a retired major from Canadian Army who had seen one of these as we talked about before one of these monstrous objects in broad daylight then went on to have a, a, an hour and 45 minutes of missing time him and his driver 
mm-hmm. uh, while they were driving uh, overland. And anyway, I don't want to get into that. But later on, there was another officer, or retired officer, present with me who related to this officer, the first one, that you know I'd been involved in a, a study of a pretty big incident, the Shag Harbor incident, and uh, I said, yeah, and we had a lot of trouble with Canadian military interfering with our witnesses. You know, when we were trying to interview them, and uh, you know, he said, well, what kind of? Uh, interference. I said, well, you know, uh, in a couple of, at least three cases, they were told to keep their mouth shut. Uh, there were, one guy in particular was phoned up when he was eating his supper in D&D in Ottawa saying, you know, as I reiterated before, he says, oh, I've done that. And I said, you phoned up people and told them not to talk about UFO? He said, no, really? no, no. He said, not about UFOs. He said, this one, he said, was about other, you know, operations we were involved in and so on. These guys are retired now. They're out there. And we knew they were going to talk to somebody. Maybe it was a documentary somebody was doing, you know. Uh, he said, um, and I, you know, and I was ordered to call and uh, people and tell them I was a ranking officer at D&D in Ottawa and, to, and tell them basically to keep their mouth shut. They knew what was good for them. I said, you actually did that. He said, at least a half a dozen times. And I couldn't believe that because here I had confirmation coming right from a horse's mouth, you know. And um, and it was at that particular time that I learned that uh, Canadian forces were involved uh, on uh, doing uh, covert uh, operations from Laos into Vietnam during the Vietnam War. I had no idea we were even involved in that level, but we were. Right. Anyway, but, you know, this is stuff that came out there, but just right. as a matter of interest. So this is a kind of, you know, uh, there's an old boys network going been going on here since the Second World War. Uh, between the Canadian and American uh, military forces, and uh, I have no doubt there would be American officers involved somehow in this thing because, you know, let's face it, the real, the ones who were really doing the study would have been the American uh, Armed Forces or the, the the Air Force or some component thereof in the, in the United States military or in their intelligence services. I don't know. I've got documents here where uh, CIA right. officers have debriefed uh, Canadian pilots when they had uh, UFO sightings. Right, which is, and, which is and, obviously and, and pretty awful. Okay, so let's get back to to this episode, though. Um, we've got the two crafts sitting on the bottom. We've got ships. Do we know how many ships were sitting on top of the water over the over these things? How many ships? Six or seven is what we've been hearing. Six or seven. Hmm. Yeah, one of them was a submarine. Really? Okay, well. Onondaga. Well, we know see it was this... the Onondaga because it was diverted there from... Uh, that's, that's actually in the newspaper, that one. How long is this going on where these craft are down at the bottom? Seven days. Seven days. Yeah. So there was no attempt to isolate these things, essentially. There's no attempt to get really near them outside of sending photographers. And again, just uh, trying to build the picture here so people can understand what actually went down. You know, you've got a major amount of hardware in the area, uh, all focused in on these two things on the bottom. Uh, we hear reports of creatures. I think at that point, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to say this would be the appropriate action, but I think at that point, you know, you got a submarine sitting there facing a couple of objects. I don't know. Maybe there's going to be an attempt to try to make sure one of these things doesn't leave? Well, I suppose maybe they had that in their heads. But um, as, it, as it turned out, it didn't happen because they didn't have the time, possibly. there was Seven um, days. I mean, Yeah, you know. well, seven days, uh, you know, first of all, you got to get your assets in position and so on. And, uh, you know, you're going to probably, if let's face it, if this happened in, in on the same evening and these things went up and they sat on the bottom, they would have had to get uh, naval vessels in there pretty quickly. Now, uh, destroyers can move pretty fast, but some of the other supply ships and so on don't move that fast. So, but, I mean, apparently there was an exercise going on offshore anyway, so uh, uh, so Canadian vessels were brought in at least two that I know of at the first. 
there's been another problem there, trying to get a ship, a list of naval movements from Halifax. Chris Bowes made it sort of a mission in life to try to get this stuff out of uh, out of Ottawa and was never able to, uh, to accomplish that because he wanted to know what ships were, were moving around. We can make a pretty good guess what they were because we're all familiar with them up here, you know, around Halifax. A supply ship, you know, a vessel. We knew the Onondaga was coming over from uh, Great Britain, was headed for Halifax, and right, the newspaper said it was diverted to Shelburne, down to Shelburne. And uh, it was a shakedown cruise for uh, some Canadian guys. Uh, we were just buying the damn thing at the time from England. So it was coming over as a uh, battery electric type, uh, or d- diesel electric type submarine, not a nuclear or anything like that. All right, not, not, anyway, not the good stuff, yeah. Yeah, well, they don't really, uh, in this particular instance, I'm not even sure whether they'd want a submarine there, but it sort of makes sense if it's underwater. But, I mean, you can't do much with a submarine. You can't do with a surface vessel. We're only talking 80 feet of water here. And uh, so whatever they were doing there, I think they were positioning themselves. Maybe they were waiting for American assets to come up, you know, other vessels that might have been able to do something. On the seventh day, um, uh, the uh, Tuesday night following, you know, according to the divers, a Russian submarine came in and challenged the 12-mile limit. They did this a lot, but in this particular instance, they decided to pick Shelburne to come in close. Right. So two of the two of the uh, Canadian naval destroyers tore off one after this thing. Right. Which you know was part of their their daily, practically weekly exercise after around the Russian all the stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was always spy uh, fishing boats out there. You could tell sure, the difference sure, between a regular fishing boat right. because of the huge antennas and radar dishes and everything. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so apparently two of them uh, gave chase uh, to the submarine that was coming in up to the threat the 12 mile limit. And at that point, these things decided to move, and they moved back to the south, southwestward, down the coast. All right and disappeared in that direction. Too fast for anybody to follow at this point. Now, we have, at this time, uh, back down in Woods Harbor, uh, which is, you know, like a half a mile away from Shag Harbor, uh, actually was Lower Woods Harbor, a fellow by the name of Lachlan Cameron, his wife, his, uh, sis- his brother-in-law and sister-in-law, and their three kids, and they're at his house, and the TV started acting funny. So he walked outside to see if there's something wrong with the antenna. This was back in the old days, you know, when an aircraft would go over, the picture would get all shaky. Right, sure. And uh, so anyway, he went outside, and at that point, they all followed him out, and then they watched two objects climbing away from the water about a half a mile from the entry point, original entry point, or where they touched down. Two objects climbed up away from the water, Stood up there or stayed up there and hovered. This is a, about an hour before the original, within an hour, seven days within an hour, about 20 after 10 that evening, and uh, hovered over the water, and then they streaked off over the Gulf of Maine towards uh, the United States, and uh, which sort of puts a nice little cap on the story whether these were the same two objects, who knows? But they were uh, estimated to be somewhere around uh, 30 to 60 feet in diameter and uh, well lit climbing up from the water and it's an rcmp report which we have copies of and but uh, so we go, yeah, go from this, the surreal back to the reality of it and uh, uh as to what happened there now of course as you know we've sketched through this thing pretty <laughs> we just skimmed the surface of what was going on you know but because uh, we don't have the time on here, it's a, you know, it took a, a whole book to write this thing out, you know. So anyway, there you have sort of an encapsulated uh, sketch of the uh, Shag Harbor incident and, and the story that uh, attached itself to it. There's documents, uh, some documents actually just support the fact that there was something going on in Shelburne, but uh, it's, 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 you know, not very definitive. You can't really pin down whether they're actually talking about the things a couple of miles off the base down there or whatever. 
Very interesting. Uh, Quick question, Don. The family sees these two craft taken off from the water, hovering and then flying back over towards the States. They're well lit. Are they well lit with four orange lights or yellow lights? I mean, do those... Uh, in this particular instance, they were displaying colored lights, oh, uh, red okay. and blues and yellows and whites and, you know, uh, greens, hmm. maybe, I don't know, without having a report in front of me, but they were uh, well lit, as they say, and uh, with colored lights. So, But I believe red and blue were mentioned in there as well. Everything uh, but yellow, basically. No, no, yellow were, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't remember now whether they said that in the report or not. Uh, I don't know if that really matters. I mean, these things are so weird. You know, these things morph around. They do whatever they want to do. You know, if they want to show off gold lights or yellow lights or reds or blues or whatever, it's very confusing. So mm -hmm. trying to nail jello to the wall to, to nail any UFO uh, sighting down is uh, this one is almost identical to that one over there. Same with, we were just talking about the, the Texas sightings a while ago. And, uh, right. The same thing's happening there. You've got 60 people reporting 60 different types of UFOs, you know, or, but they're generally lit up and so on and so forth. Um, well, you know, that always, of course, uh, casts a series of problems on, on witness sightings in that yeah. uh, when you look at the history of UFOs, one of the things that becomes obvious is that the morphology of the crafts that are sighted are, are, are the morphology is really confusing. You have a vast number of shapes sizes, colors, it's almost as if uh, whatever these things are are essentially uh, trying to confuse us and doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah, and uh, you got that right. Well, yeah. you, take a, you take a disc, uh, one of these lens-shaped craft, right? You know, the classic UFO. Mm -hmm. Sure, From absolutely. different angles, it can look like different things. If you look at it from the edge sure. on, it looks like it's cigar-shaped. If you look at it, you know, from the top, it's it's a disc. If you look at it side on with the top sort of disc, it turns into a, jeez, uh, uh, I can't remember the word, sort of a, a lipsoidal shape, you know, or uh, not quite round, not quite uh, flat, you know. You know, it depends on how much light's showing on this thing. Some people say these things are spinning. I don't believe that's probably the case. I don't think I want to be flying in anything that was whipping around at high RPM. <laughs> well, you never know, of course, whether that thing even obeys the laws of physics. That might be another yeah, question to well, talk about. Yeah, sure. What it's like inside as compared to outside, yeah. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. During the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're talking about now the aftermath of the Shag Harbor UFO case with Don Ledger, who's done extensive, extensive research on it. Don, you know, I want to kind of go back to just one thing here. The information here, the request to shut up 
yeah. which is something that we find occasionally in UFO cases, and sometimes it's real and sometimes it's fake. And were you able to talk to any military authorities about what they had to say about this? Well, other than the one that I was telling you about there later on, yeah, no. Uh, actually, uh, the colonel, uh, Colonel Rushton, uh, you know, we can use his name. Um, he uh, was the commander at the base, and he, you know, he had no uh, compunctions about adding, you know, that uh, if they thought there was some kind of a threat, uh, losing, you know, for instance, uh, divulging uh, secret information, that they they would tell, you know, personnel to keep their mouths shut and so on. And it happened uh, during the particular uh, incident itself. I told you about the American officer admonishing. Right. The exactly. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. And then uh, the same token, the electronics intelligence officer, him and the guys that were on that crew in the Argus that were uh, at the same time as American assets, incidentally, were doing the same thing with uh, the Neptune aircraft uh, down off the Gulf of Maine. Everybody was looking for something underwater that night. He said it was unusual to see that happening because normally there's uh, the usual sovereignty thing you have to worry about and uh, you have to have clearances to go in and out. He said, not that night. We were flying right over in the Gulf of Maine, right up to the shoreline in Maine and going back and forth. But anyway, he said, when they got back to the mess themselves that night at the uh, Green- Greenwood Air Force Base here in Nova Scotia, they were talking about it in the officer's mess and uh, a, a general told them to keep their mouths shut. He, he read them uh, the riot act right there in front of the whole, the whole mess and, um, you know, embarrassed them, essentially. And um, so there was another instance where it was going on, something important. Apparently, they thought it was important enough to, to tell everybody to keep their mouths shut about it. But, you know, I, you know, the UFO subject, particularly where it concerns the, the military and, uh, and, and government, is a, it's like a, an iceberg. You know, you've got 10% above water, the part we know about, and the other 90, 90% below water level, and the 100% at sea. You know, you never know what's going on with this thing. Well, the other thing that I always concern myself about here is, is the government asking anybody to shut up about because they don't want, at that point, certainly early in an investigation, to admit one thing or another. If it does represent a threat to North America especially, they are going to have to be very careful about their facts. But do they really even know anything? And that, of course, is the larger question, which yeah. is just speculation. They may just not want to admit they don't know. It's a lot easier to explain it away or sweep it under the rug. Government officials always have to be in touch. Remember that. Yeah. Well, I think think you're you're right with that. I think a lot of people seem to think that the the government knows exactly what's going on here. They've got reverse technology and all that. I don't personally buy into that one myself. We've been over that. I think this is an embarrassment to government and, and to the military. They disavow any uh, any uh, problems with these things being a threat to national security. How how could they not be? I mean, not that they are necessarily a threat, but the very fact that you can't do anything about it. Would you take that seriously? I mean, uh, if you can't defend, if you can't make your own airspace safe against these things, you know, in case they were some kind of a threat. You know, basically, it's kind of an embarrassment if you can't do that. Well, you know, there were stories back in the late 40s and early 50s that we were actually able, in some instances, to shoot them down. Yeah, well, I've actually never, I've heard about them, and so so have you, but I've never actually seen a, a really good concrete, uh, uh, and we prepared here. I've got a case in Maritime UFO files about that back in 1950, where they actually armed a, a sea fury here at the Shearwater Air Force, uh, was Naval Air Station in those days, and and actually chased one of these one night with rockets right over the city, prepared to shoot it down if they could get anywhere as close to it, but they never did. As soon as it would get within range, this thing would go zipping away from them and, you know, truly anomalous as, you know, as case as, as we've heard so many different times over mm-hmm. the last 50 years. Huh? 
anyway, this book got its legs, you know, and has traveled all over the world as this Shea Garber incident has, and uh, now it's become a, a bit of a festival uh, thing in uh, Shea Garber now. As a matter of fact, August the 8th this year, and 9th, they're gonna, we're going to have a whole festival there with the, some of the usual suspects, you know, lined up to, to do a talk there, including, of course, me and Chris. But, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you had any other questions on the Shea Garber incident. Well, I think just one here in traveling around to these various conferences and writing the book. Has that helped you get any more information, someone coming forward saying I was involved in some part of the investigation, etc.? Yeah, there's the odd one that's come to light. And uh, and a a documentary done by WKIP in New York about the Shea Garber incident. uh, uh, Once that came out in the States, that uh, really generated a, a bit of a flurry, and I've got a couple of um, military uh, people who contacted me from the United States had recalled uh, being in uh, the area in, in Maine uh, at that particular time, and they thought one of them thought for sure it might have been during the night of the Shea Garber incident where he saw an object coming down and going down over in uh, no, uh, southwestern Nova Scotia, just in the area you would expect it to be if it was mm-hmm. coming in as described by the electronics intelligence people or officer. And uh, but he was going to look because he'd written an article on. He had the date, and he never uh, was able to find that article again to discover what the date was on it. Uh, but he said he's still looking. He has to go through a bunch of old boxes because this, you know, happened back in '67. So you know that type of thing. And then, but more and more, uh, most of them that have come forward are people that have come forward in the area here, you know, down around Shake Harbor. And uh, it's amazing that some people. Didn't even know this was going on once the book came out or the documentaries came out that there was any any uh, interest in the Shea Harbor incident uh, because they didn't hear of the documentary or read the book or anything like that. And then all of a sudden they do, they see it on TV or something, and the next thing you know they're contacting you. This is 10 years after the fact now. So, uh, well, the book came out in 2000, so eight years anyway. But um, So anyway, uh, and then, of course, once the documentaries came out in the United States, people down there started reading about it and there was more interest in it and so on and so forth. But uh, now, That really brought a lot of significant new evidence, though. Just more testimony, uh-huh. uh, and uh, particularly one uh, from a, a woman and a, a fellow that were actually parked on the other side of the uh, Irish Moss plant up against the bank there, and they were up to whatever that particular night, and they watched the thing come down and land on the water. They said that it landed, it didn't crash, it just sat down in the water and drifted. Then they quietly tried to sneak out of there when everybody else showed up, and police cars and everything. Cause, and the woman who who testified to this ordered herself right at a, a, a meeting down in Shake Harbor, and they had well, a little uh, talk we were doing down. There was a couple hundred people there, and she stood right up in the audience and said, that was me. <laughs> so that was uh, quite exciting. I mean, you actually had somebody there that... Uh, you know, admitted right in front of 200 people that she was one of the witnesses uh, right on the water that night. Where and then Lori Wickens and then pulled in the parking lot, like uh, you know, seconds later. She wasn't so, signing autographs or anything, though. Huh? <laughs> yeah. No well, Anyway, there was so. her and another fellow there, and then there's other people who've come forward. And then I've since found out that the next premier in Nova Scotia was it was in the area and drove up on it that night when they were watching the thing out on the water. So uh, there's that too, but. Anyway, it's um, it doesn't dry up. The thing is, there's this peripheral evidence that sort of comes in too, that sort of tends to support this, or support the uh, evidence of other people being in the area at the time mm-hmm. that we had suspected but couldn't prove it. Now we have evidence that they were there that might be of some importance. Unfortunately, like Stan uh, Friedman says, a lot of times you're, you're 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 in a race with the Undertaker to get in contact with these people because they're passing away. This happened in '67, uh, what 40 years ago now. 
a lot of these people are already in their 40s or 30s, so they're, you know, uh, well, yes, sort of like right. Roswell. Yeah, no, it, it's it's every as frustrating as Roswell, and yeah, it sounds it sounds like in many ways it's going to be as inconclusive as Roswell. Now, Don, you have the uh, Maritime UFO Files book. It says here that the book comprises the best 140 UFO cases from 500 that you have in your files. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay, from that book, uh, Shag Harbor, we've covered. What's the one other case? that you feel is really, really solid that you've looked at in the past number of years? Um, Choose one. And it's not in the book. It's the okay. uh, Cow Bay. Cow Bay is back in uh, 2003, 2002, sorry. Well, it's there again, it's pretty involved. It's uh, It has to do with one of these giant UFOs crossing over the area. Uh, I'll be sketchy with it because what I'm going to do is I do a talk on this anyway, uh, and there's a paper out there. It's in the IUR, International UFO Reporter. I wrote, wrote it up for that originally, and it's to do with um, a woman originally who was out uh, during the Perseid meteor showers on uh, it was, uh, August the 13th. And what was really great about it is she contacted me the next morning, so it was within mm. six or eight hours of the actual incident. Mm-hmm. I was a uh, she she saw a giant triangular shaped object passed between her and the stars that night as she was watching one particular shoot you know a shooting star if you want to call it meteor coming in quite a large one she said very interesting and all of a sudden it just sort of winked out too quickly for the size of it uh and then she noticed that all the stars were missing above her and then she realized it looked like somebody was pulling a a blind across the star field above her and then she realized she was looking at first two little lights out in the corners of what looked like the front end of a triangle and then the then the one trailing and it covered the whole area just above mm. her her home down in cow bay and she was an amateur astronomer and uh she runs her own business computer business plus she's a sailor very familiar stars and so on and so forth. This thing freaked her right up. She quit smoking a week before that and ended up smoking a whole pack of cigarettes by, by about uh, 4 6 o'clock the next morning. <laughs> it's a plot by the UFO knots to cause us to get lung cancer. Yeah, that's it could be. Uh, yeah. She had her arthritic uh, Labrador retriever was sitting there with her who could barely walk, but he got up and ran in the house. She said he hadn't, she hadn't seen him run in two years. Um, she was freaked out by this. But... <laughs> As it turned out, and I don't want to get too deeply into this because it, but again, over a, a period of a couple of weeks before I found out that an air traffic controller was trying to contact me, because I what I had done I was phoning around trying to find out if anybody else had seen this particular object this night. It was at 2:15 in the morning, a very nice night. It was hot, you know, and uh, temperatures up around you know 80 degrees or something like that, even in the evening. And um, so I, I phoned around the police stations, RCMP. Uh, detachments. I phoned the, the 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 newspapers in the area and the radio stations, TV stations, trying to find out if anybody else had reported this thing. And of course, one of the newspapers got back to me and got interested and wanted to know more about it. So I, I gave them uh, what I had on the story, a, a brief outline without the woman's name. And then the next day, I had to go away uh, for uh, ten days to a meeting in Ottawa for my work my day job and uh when i got back i had a whole bunch of emails on my uh my computer i didn't realize that the uh this 
story had taken on legs. It went to AP and the Canadian Pacific Press and ended up over in Europe. I got French people calling me about it and everything else. But anyway, so again, trying to keep this brief, as it turned out, one of the emails I had, uh, somebody asked me if I wanted some help in this, and, and I had something like 46 emails waiting when I got back just on this alone, 16 phone messages. And uh, so I start, was trying to keep up with this. And about uh, a week later, uh, or less than that, maybe four or five days later, I got another email from this person saying, if you don't contact me soon, I won't, and with the times and, and, and so on, I, and position, I won't be able to help you because they're going to erase the radar tapes. And I got to tell you, we're only down to like two and a half, three minutes here, so we really okay. have to wrap this up. All right. Well, I'm almost done anyway. Right, but anyway, okay. so it turns out this guy was an air traffic controller. He was able to find the tapes and find the thing on the tapes, uh, that there was a mm. rate where I said it was, and it going at the speed and going the direction that I determined that it was. And this thing was about 3,600 feet on its side. That's what uh, we determined to be the size. Jeez. At about 2,000 feet. So, well, anyway, that was uh, that's a pretty involved case, and uh, and it's very it's always intrigued me, and uh, pretty much the same thing as other people reported being huge and so on. Let's look over um, the books that you have written, so those of us who would like to learn more about your studies can check into them. Now, the book on Shag Harbor, it's called Dark Object, subtitled The Shag Harbor Nova Scotia Incident by Don Ledger and Chris Stiles. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about that. As you see, it's not just a simple UFO case with lots of accompanying details that get very complicated. There also, there's this other book called Maritime UFO Files. Now, new edition or just newly in print? That's, uh, it's new, uh, new edition. It's oh, okay. been re-released. Yeah. Okay, newly released. And you also have a third book called Swiss Air Down, The Crash of Swiss Air Flight 111 off Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia. That's not related to the paranormal UFOs, is no, it? No, that's just uh, me and, uh, looking at a, an airliner crash from a pilot's point of view. That's nothing to do with UFOs or anything like that. Fairly, uh-huh. uh, uh, one of my best books, too, I might add. Can I just add to uh, David or... Uh, say what you have sure. to say. Go yeah, ahead. just... Phyllis Galdi's uh, at Fate Magazine was kind enough to humor an old man and uh, put an article in about the um, uh, Stephenville UFO sightings and the uh, to do with the uh, Crawford Ranch, you know, the uh, restricted area and so on. That's mm-hmm. that'll be out in the March issue. Uh, anybody that already that gets it as a as a subscription will already have it now. Probably, I think it came out on the 21st of February. But just to let people know, they want to have a look at that that part, and it gets rather detailed. There's about 3,200 words on it, so they want to re, uh, read that all over again just to let them know it's out there. Well, uh, certainly Fate Magazine is a friend of the show. Why don't I get a copy of Fate Magazine? Why do you get one and I don't get one? Because, they, you know, I'm going to repeat a line from one film that I like the way she said it. They don't like you. Oh, man. No, that that's, that's, that's really nasty. You know what? I'll write to Phyllis and make sure that you get a copy of the March 2008 issue of Fate Magazine so Don Ledger's article is front and center for you. If our listeners, seriously enough, okay, and we're kidding a little bit here. Seriously enough, Don, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, maybe they have more information, maybe they have questions, where can they write you? Well, they can contact me right through my website at okay. www.donledger.com. Donledger.com, right? Yeah, uh, donledger.com. It's all, all one word, Don Ledger, in lowercase. And uh, when they get in there, they'll see at the top there's a, an area where they can get in through to go to the UFO reports. The, the very first page is just uh, talking about the uh, reincarnation of uh, maritime UFO files, but also uh, there's a lot in there on the Shake Harbor incident and so on and so forth. Uh, and But right up on the front page is my email address, so it's easy. You can get a hold Thanks. of me through my email, my telephone number if you want, or uh, nobody's using snail mail much anymore, but I, you know, I don't, you didn't want that address, did you? 
No, no. it's okay. The only person we know who uses snail mail is Jim Mosley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He won't use computers. Yeah, I know. he will not yeah. use computers. By the way, we're going to have him do special commentaries every month or two. The best of Saucer Smear. Where he'll tell us all about yeah. the latest gone goings and gossip in the UFO field. Yeah. Exclusively on the Paracast. And by the way, Don Ledger, we enjoyed the encounter. Thank you for joining us this week on the Paracast. It's great to be on. Thanks Thank very much Don. for having me. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.